This is Francisco Ponce, and I'm the program director uh, of the Neurosurgery Residency at Barrow Neurological Institute. You are listening to Interview with a Surgeon with a Surgeon Agent. On this episode of Interview with the Surgeon, we welcome Dr. Francisco Ponce, neurosurgeon and the chief of stereotactic and functional neurosurgery at Barrow Neurological Institute. He serves as director of both the Center of Neuromodulation and the Neurosurgery Residency Program. Dr. Ponce's experience includes deep brain stimulation surgery for Parkinson's disease, essential tremor, and dystonia. He is also active in the operative management of cranial and spinal trauma. Dr. Ponce has published extensively on DBS and other neurosurgical procedures in peer-reviewed journals. He presents regularly at national and international conferences. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining Interview with the Surgeon. Today, we welcome Dr. Francisco Ponce, neurosurgeon at Barrow Neurological Institute. Doc, how are we doing today? Always great. Thanks for having me, Matthew. Thanks for being with us. So let's just jump right into it. What were your goals and aspirations during your residency, and how did those change during your fellowship? So um, going into residency, you know, with, with surgery, Right, it, it's there's an apprenticeship model, right? It's an apprenticeship you learn. Uh, there's varying degrees of uh, exceptionalism amongst surgeons. So, um, going into residency, uh, I knew it mattered who I trained under, and I wanted to train under a master surgeon. And um, uh, and at that time, um, uh, Robert Spetzler was like the biggest name in neurosurgery. It's one of those that, you know, once you start digging, you discover that there's this surgeon in Phoenix, Arizona, who's doing things that nobody's doing. And, um, uh, and so I really sought out that opportunity to kind of kickstart and get my, the foundation of my, uh, my essence as a surgeon, uh, rock solid by training at the best training program there is. Um, and what was really, uh, kind of the, the metric there was, uh, these very complicated uh, surgeries uh, involving aneurysms, sort of the, the pinnacle of uh, technical difficulty uh, in neurosurgery. You know, neurosurgery kind of represents a pinnacle of medicine. And on top of that, uh, the aneurysm surgeons, the ones who kind of clip these ticking time bombs, uh, have kind of had this, this position in neurosurgery as sort of the, the, the top dogs since the 1970s, the, the most dangerous and technically demanding uh, operations. And, um, and so I, I sought that out and I, I went and I did some brain tumor research as an, as a medical student, but by the time I started uh, residency, I'd um, done a number of clinical research projects had uh, kind of, uh, gotten under the wing of, uh, of, of Dr. Spetzler and, um, uh, and kind of envisioned myself being his protege, um, during residency, uh, I, I realized that, you know, kind of to quote, uh, Wayne Gretzky, right? You want to skate to where the puck's going, not to where the puck is. Uh, that uh, there is sort of an, a, a change occurring in, in, in neurosurgery. And what was the great surgeries in the 1980s were not going to be the great surgeries in my mid, you know, later career, even when I started my career at, after residency. And it was funny because actually one of your uh, previous guests, John Adler, he was the first neurosurgeon uh, I, I interacted with right after I graduated from, uh, from undergraduate from, from college. And he, uh, as I was applying for residency four years later, uh, he gave, had kind of gave me some advice that the aneurysm surgeons were going to be the dinosaurs and that, that technical mastery that re requires those 10,000 hours of deliberate surgical practice, that this skill set was going to be something that was going to kind of fade as medicine progresses. And, um, 
and that kind of stayed in the back of my mind. And so during residency, uh, I kind of saw that all the chairmen who themselves were tumor surgeons and aneurysm surgeons would say, the future of neurosurgery is functional. Um, that's basically rewiring the circuits of the brain to treat various conditions. You know, Parkinson's, tremor, um, we're looking at Alzheimer's, depression. Um, but that operation that uh, is not a very technical operation. Basically, drill a hole in the head, and then you pass a wire to the spot that's going to, you know, pace the brain. And um, uh, and it was not as sexy, right? And at Barrow, which we you know we beat our chest being the most technically gifted, you know, training program in the country, uh, it people traditionally weren't going in that direction. And um, and so during my residency. Uh, as I was kind of like surveying the changing times of, uh, of, of, of medicine and surgery and where things were headed, the unique thing about functional neurosurgery was um, what it sounded like to the public. You know, the ability to capture the public's imagination saying, we're going after Alzheimer's by turning the light bulb back on, you know, and the visual effect of turning on a deep brain stimulator and seeing a significant tremor disappear. And, um, and so there's a discrepancy between sort of what you experience in the operating room and what you actually see from the outside, you know, the, these amazing outcomes and really like the, the, the imagination, the possibility of these brain machine interfaces revolutionizing how we restore function for patients. And, um, and it was a, a buddy of mine in college when I met up with them discussing clipping and aneurysm and we were both physics majors in, uh, in college. And it, it was the, the appeal of clipping an aneurysm was completely lost on him, right? It's like, you can train a monkey to operate. And that was a moment that occurred about halfway through my residency as I was kind of getting other kind of influences in terms of kind of where things, where I should be skating. Um, that uh, uh, when you talk about functional neurosurgery, uh, it sounds really cool. Uh, but in residency, you usually see like the first and second year residents doing it, not the seventh year residents. You don't do seven years of training to drill a little hole and put a wire in the brain. And so that was sort of uh, really where um, I, I kind of said, you know, somebody's gonna do it from Barrow, it might as well be me. You know, everyone's saying this is the future. Uh, you know, there's a the conventional wisdom is sort of like this clipping of aneurysms may be the thing of the past. Uh, and as much fun as it is to get under the microscope and get your hands into the center of the brain and do very delicate uh, work like our, our uh, Dr. Spetzler, or Dr. Lawton, um, you know, I figured, you know, give this a shot, see where it goes. And, and that was the big, the biggest pivot, I think, in, in my residency was deciding to kind of put my subspecialty interest uh, in that direction to kind of uh, be ready uh, if, a, if a position like that were to open uh, to seize that, that opportunity. So taking us through your mentality during your fellowship, what were you going through regarding your first job search? And how that perspective changed in the beginning years of your career? So, um, so during my fellowship, um, uh, I was able to. Uh, I went to Toronto, and um, uh, and I think that's going to, you know, in line of you know, looking for good mentors, good, uh, you know, the surgical, uh, the spirit of surgery, and the different types of approaches. You know, John Adler, who kind of went with Seertech radio surgery, right, which is not, you know, you're not using a scalpel for that, right? Robert Spetzler, who is doing the, the, the most technical operations under the microscope in the depth of the brain. And uh, what I saw during my fourth year of residency 
um, was that what was really kind of standing room only type of uh, talks at the meetings were functional. And one was Dr. Andres Lozano, and he's the uh, he's at, at University of Toronto. Um, and so that's where I went. And, um, and he was doing a lot of work with depression. Um, and he had just uh, finished his phase one trial uh, with Alzheimer's. We're currently in a phase three trial looking at deep brain stimulation for Alzheimer's. He just finished his early work with that uh, when, I, when I got there. And um, my experience when I went there, you know, deep brain stimulation is an operation that's done awake. Uh, you have a scientist in there kind of mapping out the cells and it, it can take uh, a, all day basically. And so um, what, what I saw uh, when I went there and, and because it's an awake brain surgery, you know, who is it for, right? Is it a treatment of last resort? Is it, uh, you know, is it a, an experiment that you're doing? You know, cause a lot of research is being done in, the, in those operating rooms. Uh, I saw a huge opportunity to kind of streamline the operation and make moves toward making it something that's more readily accepted because the data is out there. The data for deep brain stimulation says it's not a treatment of last resort. You know, it's, there's a very, very clear time point at which it's going to give a boost to quality of life for patients with Parkinson's and tremor. Um, and so, you know, you look at the, the, the setting and you see why patients aren't signing up for this, why neurologists aren't referring patients to this. And, um, and that this can change, you know, that this can be something that, you know, what's the path, right? From where we are today, where we were 10 years ago, to where we might be in 2050, where say, because of neurodegenerative diseases, 15% of people are candidates for some kind of, you know, brain chip, right? Whether it be for memory, for Parkinson's, uh, for obesity, and what's the path there? Well, you gotta, you gotta really standardize this operation, you know, when, you're run-of-the-mill patient, it can't be an experiment, it's gotta be just, right, get you in, get you out, get you back in the game. And kind of seeing the workflow that was present during my fellowship, which is very similar to how it was in the, in the 80s and, or the 90s and the 2000s, uh, I saw an opportunity kind of, kind of put BNI, you know, the Bayer Neurological Institute, you know, ethos of surgery uh, into, the, uh, into DBS. And so um, uh, my experience of fellowship kind of uh, motivated me to see the opportunity to kind of build a volume in this subspecialty beyond what was currently uh, assumed could be possible, both by streamlining the operation, making it more efficient, engaging with neurologists, educating patients, and providing a very consistent, predictable result with the surgical outcomes uh, so that the click would happen that people would realize that uh, they're choosing not to improve their life if they choose not to have surgery. That surgery is that basically, you know, think about the situation where if you think Parkinson's, what's the mind, what's the shift that takes place when people think Parkinson's surgical disorder, you know, it's, I mean, you think brain tumor, right? You need surgery, right? If you have Parkinson's, uh, I need a brain pacemaker, right? That's, there's a shift. And the, 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 the um, events have been taking place since the early nineties going in that direction. I think that there's, I got the sense that there was kind of a stall that was taking place in terms of the advancement of this. And using that platform of things like Tremor and Parkinson's, we can use that safety and efficacy to learn more about the brain and take the next incremental steps targeting things like Alzheimer's, you know, appetite disorders, uh, mood disorders. So that was kind of the, uh, that's kind of where I went when I kind of jumped from training, having, you know, seen the Spetzler way of doing things, you know, worked with one of the most, you know, innovative thinkers, you know, in the field with Dr. Andres Lozano, and then, you know, having the opportunity to kind of do my own thing uh, after residency.
the uh, the first job, you know, the uh, the the options are always, you know, do you do private practice? Do you know, where do you end up? Um, a lot of academic medical centers uh, really kind of are looking at sort of that surgeon scientist, you know, having a lab, um, you know, having 50% of your time dedicated to research, 50% toward clinical, and um, uh, like a lot of people point out, a lot of uh, what job you, you, you get is uh, a matter of uh, timing, right? There's only so much room for a tumor surgeon or an aneurysm surgeon or a DBS surgeon. And the timing was such that um, uh, the Barrow had been looking for uh, somebody to kind of represent in the functional stage like we've traditionally been represented with tumors, with aneurysms, with spine, and, have, uh, and, and they had the, uh, the resources, resources to invest in that. And, um, uh, and so I, in, uh, in some ways, rather than learning the Barrow magic and taking it somewhere else after my residency, while I was at the Barrow, I went somewhere else, learned the magic there, you know, this, the, the skill set, the, the, the niche, uh, and brought it back to uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and so I was positioned both because they were still looking and because I had the training, uh, right place, right time, right subspecialty. Uh, to get a position uh, at Barrow, um, and where it was sort of the uh, right specialized in functional neurosurgery, have the opportunity to continue kind of a general practice with general call, and uh, initiate uh, uh, an academic practice as well. What would you say were some of the keys of your success that shaped your early career as you climbed the top of your industry? The um, uh, I had a really uh, uh, dynamic um, neurologist that I partnered with. Uh, early on, um, and I also did not have a senior. Um, uh, we, we had other uh, uh, surgeons in my subspecialty, but not as sort of owning that kind of that 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 section within our department. Uh, so I was kind of able to kind of start off uh, in charge of that section, the the stereotactic functional section uh, of our of our group. Um, so you know, starting out of residency, not really having somebody I had to necessarily you know defer to in my subspecialty, kind of having that ownership. And then having a partner um, who uh, was open to new ways of doing things. It specifically, uh, during my first year in practice, um, we made a shift from doing this, the traditional approach, which was an awake operation. Uh, we, we shifted to doing it under anesthesia, which made it uh, uh, a much uh, faster and efficient operation and predictable and, and more appealing for a patient that don't want to be awake for surgery. And so uh, that neurologist who was uh, subspecialty trained, fellowship trained in all the awake maneuvers was open to uh, considering changing the way we do the operation, which in effect had the, uh, was made the operation more accessible. Um, you know, I, I think if I had been in practice for five years, kind of doing it the old fashioned way, I might not have had that same kind of flexibility mentally to try something new. I'm like, well, this works. I'm happy with my practice. I'm not hungry for, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm not looking to like double my volume. And so I, I might've kind of got, become a creature of habit um, had I not had that chance to be exposed to that new way of, of, of doing it um, and having the support with my partners uh, in other areas in neurology uh, to try that out. Um, so we were able to kind of uh, dip our toes in that seven months into my practice and then we ran with it and then the rest was history and we became the largest deep brain stimulation program in the country. What advice do you have for graduating residents and fellows entering the professional job market for the first time? Um, you know, I think uh, uh, be open to a range of uh, opportunities and experiences, see what sticks, 
you know, uh, when I first started, uh, I did a, I, I made many attempts to kind of start a lab, uh, get basic science work, and that didn't take traction when, uh, meanwhile, the clinical part really took off. You know, it's not like I started being like, I want to be the highest volume DBS surgeon in the country. You know, that was that wasn't actually my, my intent. I wanted to build a program. Um, but then when we started doing um, a sleep surgery, all of a sudden the volume grew. Uh, the opportunity came to participate in the phase two trial of Alzheimer's. Um, and, and, you know, but that's not what I started off saying. This is going to be my area of focus. You know, it's a zero sum game, right? Whether you're, uh, you know, traveling for organized neurosurgery, if you're working in a laboratory, if you're writing clinical papers, you're teaching residents and family, right? You know, what you do outside of the hospital, it's, you know, I think uh, more and more uh, you're going to see, uh, you know, neurosurgeons who uh, have real interests outside, have a balanced life, you know, the work-life uh, balance. Um, so it is a zero-sum game, uh, but I, what I encourage graduates is uh, find a way to contribute to the field uh, beyond just that doctor-patient relationship. Um, you know, there's, there's something. You don't have to be at university. Uh, you don't necessarily have to be at a residency. It's, it's a, it's, teaching makes it not just a job. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of my biggest joys is being able to teach residents. Um, and, uh, uh, and it's a real privilege to be an educator like that, but not everyone's going to end up in a residency program. Um, so if you're not in a residency program, you're not, you know, there, there's always, there's some way to, to make an impact in the field. And, you know, the, the thing about being a doctor is with that experience with the patient in the clinic, in the operating room, that's almost enough. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly gratifying. You come home at the end of the day, you started and finished one, two, three, four operations. So you've actually done something uh, kind of finite, but compl you've completed it. Um, so it's easy to kind of be like, you know what, this is enough. You know, I've got, you know, I've got my family, I've got my, you know, whatever, you know, like to do this sport and I've got this great job that gives me a lot of fulfillment. And I think that sort of charge, especially, you know, kind of when you've had uh, amazing mentors and you've been at amazing programs and you've had this amazing, you know, pedigree education, you know, paying it forward, how do you pay it forward? And I think that there's many ways to do that uh, and, and to kind of keep your eyes open, uh, looking for these opportunities uh, to pay it forward in, in not necessarily, you know, your traditional conventional ways of, you know, residency and research, um, but to strive for something beyond just that patient-doctor relationship uh, that is really the core uh, of our day-to-day -day, uh, responsibility and, uh, and mission. Um, you know, another thing I often tell uh, residents, you know, when Again, it's, there's only so many jobs for aneurysms, for tumors. Um, one thing I, I read in editorial when I was in residency was find what nobody wants to do and make it yours. And um, it, it can be so pithy, but it's like, for example, pain neurosurgery, like pain. It's a, it can, people just like stay away, they stay away from that, you know. No one's doing it. Go right, that's why I did. Nobody, no barrel resident was going into fu uh, functional. They weren't doing deep brain stimulation. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to make this mine. I'm going to own it. And um, and then a couple of years after me, one of our uh, uh, junior uh, associates uh, graduated and had a real interest in the lab. And I said, you know, go for pain, make it pain. It's wide open, and nobody nobody's doing it. And so, um, you know, in neurosurgery, everybody's flocking to spine, right? Spine is becoming almost a commodity. Um, you know, they're doing it at uh, you know at strip malls, right? Strip mall surgery at, at these ambulatory surgery centers. And so the, the, the competition is so fierce for somebody because as it becomes a commodity. 
And so I think one one approach is you know is to find that one area, find those areas that is are underrepresented, own it, make it yours, and there's that pride of ownership that results from it. That no matter what it looked like from the perspective of the resident who's always trying to get into the tumors and aneurysms, once you get in practice, it's a completely different shift. And once it becomes your practice, that pride of ownership supersedes so many other aspects of, of, of what the surgery entails. With all your experience in the operating room and understanding that there is a human element to being a surgeon, what type of advice would you have given your younger self when dealing with possible complications during cases? That's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think that uh, one of the, um, the appeals of, you know, neurosurgery, of, of, of medicine and surgery itself, it's sort of like the, you know, the experience, uh, and, and this, this is, um, uh, you know, it, it's like people who sign up to be a soldier. You know, that, now that's another, that's a higher, that's a totally different level of service and risk. And like we, we've talked about before, it's, you know, medicine is not a very high risk path. Right, it's a very safe path. You get to be a doctor, and there's and there's very little that as long as you can get the A, right, and you can you know score well on the tests, you can become a doctor. Like there's not much you know uh, subjectivity in that path. Um, but but people look for that experience, right? It's the uh, the the elevating experience that you know you you discover wisdom through, and you discover uh, something about humanity through, and um, and and being at the patient bedside during you know. Uh, Death and dying uh, will teach you something about life, and um, and I think and same thing with the grind of residency, right? It's uh, you know putting yourself uh, through those the, the worst years, your best years you'd never want to repeat. So I always uh, call the second year of uh, of residency, you know, and, and the transformative experience. So so that being said, um, uh, the um, when you get those complications, people try to you know. Not everybody handles those the same way. You know, some people want to, you know, you know, walk the walk and act like it's not a big deal, um, and and other people feel crushed by it. And uh, and I think that the um, some of the best surgeons, you know, when you see, you know, I, I often joke that life-saving surgery is overrated because with life-saving surgery, the most dangerous operations, you win some, you lose some. Even in the best of hands, you're going to get devastating complications the higher you go in terms of a, a complexity. Um, and, uh, and those surgeons who've committed themselves to, uh, to that craft at, at those, the, the higher levels of, of, of morbidity, um, they've got to show up the next day. But that journey to becoming that surgeon who can show up the next day, uh, uh, it, it's not easy, right? It's, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it, 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 it does a number on your soul. And so, when you get those complications, soak them in. Don't forget about the patient. You know, when it's uh, when when the patient's in intensive care unit, there can be almost this force field outside of that room uh, when you go around, and you're just you just you know, want to put your head down and keep walking, and you got to break through that force field and just go to their side and talk to the family, engage with them, and and really soak it up um, uh, and be there for the patient and and don't bury it, um, while at the same time processing that experience knowing that the right thing to do is to show up the next day and give it your best shot all over again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Interview with the Surgeon. Until next time, stay focused and keep following your dreams.